I hit Vancouver in the blazing sun on the 9th of February, 61. And from the 10th of February through till May, it rained and poured all night and day. The more they tried to keep me down, the better I live in this here town. And the more they try to grind you down, the better I like Vancouver town. So welcome back to Vancouver Places, and this week we actually have a very special episode for you. As always, we do have uh, Dave Dorgie and Graham Menzies, and this week we actually have a special guest. Graham? Yeah, uh, good evening, uh, Mike. Hi, Dave. Hi, Graham. I'm uh, happy to uh, welcome to our podcast, our special 11th podcast, a special guest, Mr. Chris Brumwell. Uh, The Brummer. I was going to say, those of you who know him well. Brumster Manias tonight. Yeah, the Brummer. Uh, Chris, the Brummer Brumwell. What's that, Dave? Brumster Rama. The Brumster Rama evening is, yeah, is yeah. what we're doing this evening. But uh, Chris uh, is an old chum of ours. Uh, Dave and I, we both work together. All the three of us work together at uh, the Vancouver Winter Olympics Organizing Committee, VANOC. Uh, that's where we got to know each other. Chris and I were on the same uh, team. And uh, Dave was down the hall. And we used to like uh, go and shoot spitballs at Dave. Yeah, you made fun of me. That's kind of I how had, I remember it. Yeah, yeah. My bald spot was growing bigger, and you would make fun of it back then. Yeah. yeah. But it's <laughs> great to have Chris, Chris welcome to the show. Say hello. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. What you been doing it's lately? Exciting. What you do, What you been doing lately? Oh well, um, just trying to figure out life in 2020. <laughs> um, it's uh, been interesting. Um, but I think we're doing okay. We have, uh, kids are back in school and our puppy is fun and we're hanging in there at work and here on a Friday night, having a glass of wine, talking to you guys. Now speaking, speaking of work, like we know where you work, but tell, tell our dozen of listeners where you work. Okay. Listeners. So I work at, uh, Rogers arena. I work for Canuck sports and entertainment. Um, and I oversee the, the communications, community, and fan engagement work that happens there. So kind of like the PR guy for the Canucks and the arena, if you, if you want to look at it that way. You're the, you're the vice president? You got a highfalutin title? You're a VP? Uh, a VP, yes. Yeah, have, highfalutin. Do you have your own helicopter? I, I knew you when you were just an intern back That's in right. Time. I knew you when you were just kind of coming in with your suspenders and your That's right. diapers and you're just like 1995. Yeah. Cutting out newspaper articles, photocopying them. Well, that was a great gig yeah. for you. I, I, I got to disclose that I, I worked at that arena when it was called General Motors Place from 1994 to 2001. And Chris, Chris joined in 95 as an intern. And what a That's great right. career you have had. Now, where, how did that come about? Were you going to UBC or BCIT or where did you intern from? I was, uh, I'm from BC, but I was going to school at Mount Royal in Calgary. And my uncle is, um, I don't know if they're still close or not, but he went to university with Jay Triano. And so for those who aren't familiar with Jay, Jay is one of the most accomplished Canadian basketball players and executives ever. And he worked for the Grizzlies and I wanted to get an internship there, the Grizzlies or anywhere really in the arena. And so I got a chance to call Jay one day and he put in a good word for me and here we are all these years later. 
Well, I got to confess that, um, so we worked together. I joined in 94. He came along in 95 for the, the entire duration there. Then then we all went to the Olympics and then you That's went right. back. Then then you, you know, at, when, the, when 2010 was over, because you had an important communications role in Graham's department, and then the everything had changed there. I guess it was the Aquilini Group, or did you work under yep. the Aquilini Group before you left? Before you left for the Olympics, they purchased the team just before I left. Okay. Like, okay. Yeah, and uh, so I never really worked with them. I I helped my sort of one of my last uh, roles there, I guess, or last things I did was to help introduce Francesco when he purchased when the family purchased the team, and we did a press conference and everything, and. And then the NHL lockout happened and there weren't any games and for a while. A, lo- a lot of talent because the skill set you required in communication, sales and marketing to work for an Olympics, you could have learned that at the Canucks. So I remember there being, uh, you know, we, I don't want to talk inside baseball, a bunch of names, but there was about a half a dozen or a dozen people that made the transition. The NHL weren't playing. And um, the Olympics were coming to town and people were wooed over people like yourself and make a decision. And yeah. was that a tough decision for you to go from the from the Vancouver Canucks steady job every year, promotion, security, to take a flyer on the 2010 Olympic Games? It was hard. Uh, it was a dream job for me. Like I was a 20 some odd year, year old kid from Victoria, B.C. And Canucks were my favorite team growing up. And I got to I was as close as you could be to the team. Um, without, you know, being a coach really, or a trainer and traveling around North America with them and seeing all the different places and cities. It was amazing. Um, but I had a chance, like, I, I bet you my story's not too dissimilar to Graham and Dave's yours that had a chance to work on Olympic games and Paralympic games in our own town. Yeah. You just can't say no to that. It's just, yeah. uh, and, and I'm so glad I did. Um, yeah. cause what an experience that was. Those are pretty good. Those are those are good times. That was fun. That was yeah. a lot of hard work. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> oh my god, that hard work! That was a lot of hard work, but it was uh, good. But let me ask you guys a little bit more about the arena, because Dave, you kind of wrote about this in the in the book. I'm going from memory, and I think you just said 1995. 1995, it opened. But it's in a weird place. What? Why is it where it is Chris, geographically? Can I jump in and then I'll, 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 I'm interested in your opinion because because when I began it was a big hole in the ground and uh, Arthur Griffiths didn't have the resources to really see the project through. It was a massive amount of money required to build the building, acquire the Grizzlies, and where it is between those two viaducts, between the Georgia and the Dunsmuir viaduct, is that what they're called? Yep, yep that's I right. I mean, Chris, because. It's sandwiched in there. The sight lines are a bit different. Like it's a bit of a skinnier arena with steeps with a with a steep set of stairs and steep seats because it was sandwiched in there. That's um, right. Yeah, yeah. So you 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 still you concur with that when you're giving tours and stuff. It's a little bit different than most arenas. It's, it's shape. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you're next time, and my goodness, I hope people are back in Rogers Arena next time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of these sure, days. Next but year, yeah. Next time someone, you know, if you're in there, the concourse, so the area that you can walk, you know, around the building and there's all the concession stands and everything is, is smaller than most arenas because of what you just talked about. And the bowl, so all the seats in the arena uh, are, are um, built, uh, I guess, more with a steep, uh, incline, I suppose you could yes, say. Yes, well right? said. Yes. So I didn't know that. Um, yeah. So the the sight lines, like if you're sitting up at the very, you know, the nosebleeds, 
are excellent compared yeah. to what most arenas would find just because they had to sandwich the arena in there. So between, between your two tours of duty, how many years have you spent there? I think it's 16. So you must look at 16, like the back of your hand, you know, yeah. you must just yeah. every nook and cranny and shortcut and stairwell. But let so me, let me I want to jump in here with a question. If, if I may, Dave, sure. I was going to say, since you know the place so well, Chris, there's <laughs> got to be like, what are some, is there anything unusual or weird in there that most people wouldn't know about? Unusual or weird. <laughs> um, I have to think about that a little bit. All right, think um, about that some more. I usually see more of the outside. outside of it than the inside. But that's like, just, like if like outside the arena, one thing I was thinking about um, that most people probably don't realize, and here's something you can actually do in uh, in a pandemic. So there's a Pat Quinn statue outside. Yeah, that you, you guys might be familiar with, yeah. and, and and that was that was put up. Um, a few years ago when Pat passed as a legacy for him. And um, so if you're ever walking by that statue, it's on the, the North Plaza, the Toyota Plaza there. Uh, there's a few things to note, right? That, that I don't know if I call them weird, but they're probably not noteworthy. So um, Pat is built to be life-size and there's a bench right next to him, which most statues probably don't have. And that was built because in 2002, Pat was the head coach of the Canadian Olympic team in Salt Lake city that won the gold medal. Right. And he used to often sit uh, on a bench, the certain bench outside Canada house in Salt Lake and athletes from, from sports would come, you know, all, all country would come and just chat with Pat about hmm. everything and anything. And this, he'd, that's sit, cool. he'd sit there with a, with a cigar and chat away. Um, and so Norm Williams is the sculptor of this statue and he put the bench there in, uh, I guess, recognition of that. And also because Pat is, uh, is portrayed in the statue as when he was coaching. So you can sit on the bench kind of like where the players would sit. Um, and so there's a, there's a cool place that you can sit and, you know, have your lunch or do whatever. And, mm. um, and the two other things there, he's in his hand, he's holding a lineup card uh, from the 94 remember in 94 that the team um, went all the way to game seven of the Stanley cup final. And on that card is the, is the roster, the whole, all the players who were part of that team. So it's uh, yeah, yeah, a little, sort of little pieces of that statue that are kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's I've, very cool. I've walked by that statue so many times. I, I hadn't even noticed the bench. That's to be really honest a, with you. I just never thought about. Pat Quinn was one of those guys that was, was larger than life. And then him together with, with Stu Jackson at the time, yeah, um, we're just there were like a couple of iconic figures that um, I don't know if our listeners nowadays can appreciate, you know, that basketball was new. Hockey was established. Yeah. He was like he had the credentials and the gravitas and the the looks and the character and the charisma. And uh, you put the two in a room and it was like there, you had a couldn't breathe. All the oxygen was sucked out. So those were yeah. such iconic figures. Pat Quinn. And Stu Jackson, you know. I'll never forget. Sorry to take a side note here. I'll never forget my first day because like, I was a huge fan growing up, right? And so my first day I get hired uh, to be an intern. And um, my boss, Debbie Butt, takes me on a walk. And we're, we're it's a game day. I think they played the Pistons, if I'm not mistaken. The Grizzlies did. And we're Detroit walking. Pistons. 
we're walking through the, the sort of back of house uh, and we walk past the Canucks dressing room and I can smell a cigar. <laughs> What's that going to lead to? Yeah. And that's, and that's Pat. Pat used to smoke cigars, right? Um, and uh, one of the things, Graham, you asked about was weird little nooks and crannies and things. And here yeah. I just came to mind when Pat had his office built in the executive area on level 400, I think it was, his office was, was outfitted with special um, exhaust is the wrong word, but ventilation, ventilation yeah. right? <laughs> so he could smoke a cigar in his office and the ventilation would take the smoke out. Wow. So really that. that's when, you know, you've really arrived yeah, you've made it. Yeah. when they build yeah. your office with, you know, your own special cigar, you know, venting system. Yeah. Well, yeah. You've got that on your houseboat, don't you, Dave? I've, I, I need ventilation for other things. Flatulence. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not talk about that. So, 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 Chris, with your job, um, you travel around to other arenas. And what's the, you know, when, when that arena opened, I remember in 94, 95, it, it was the hottest arena. Yeah. People would come from other cities to tour it to look at our sound system, our score clock, to look at the sight lines, concessions, and, and it was state of the art. What, right. is, what is the state of the art arena? Is it always the newest one? Or is there one that was just built so well that it just always sticks out? Is it Madison Square Garden's upgrade or was it the Staples Center? Or when you travel around North America, is there one arena that when you leave it, you, you wish that Rogers Arena could be like that arena? Ooh, good question. Um, well, the, the ones that are state-of-the-art that people now look to, the, the Edmonton Arena, Rogers Place, is brand new. Um, and is spectacular. Uh, they've done an incredible job and they have the whole ice district around it. Um, that one is an amazing arena. The MSG in New York, the, uh, the upgrades that they made there, um, are, are just absolutely spectacular. That, that arena is, is worth the visit for sure. Um, because they, they were able to keep the history that sort of that, uh, that heritage that it, that it, it has, um, but it's now state of the art as well. But the the greatest experience I think at an arena that I I can just from an atmosphere perspective, Stills United Center in in Chicago yeah. when they sing the U.S. national anthem before the game, it is like it brings me to tears when I'm sitting there. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's, what a, what a what a perspective you have. I mean, to see these different um, arenas and um, you know. The, America, a country's culture is built on sports, and to go to, to arenas like the uh, the one in Chicago and New York, wow! Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool. So I um, only want to make two points because because back in '94 when, when Rogers Arena went up, it was called General Motors Place, and I, you know, you, you, when you write a book, you get to write what you want to, and I, no one knows this, and it was it's so important to us at the time, and it gets forgotten that we were the first arena in Canada, Chris to be built by private funds. There wasn't, there wasn't a penny right. of tax. And I want the, the listeners of our podcast. And when, when I wrote that chapter, I thought, you know, no one cares but me, but I don't care. I'm going to write about it. So you, are you familiar with the Pacific Coliseum? Of course. Yeah. Built by yes, yes. Built by government money. Your taxpayers' money funded 100% of it. Are you familiar with BC Place? Of course you are. Every penny in that was from your taxpayers' money. Are you familiar with what used to be called the Northlands Coliseum? Yes. Calgary Saddledome. 
Let's keep on going. The, the old Winnipeg Arena. In 92, 93, 94, the thought of funding an arena entirely from an individual's pockets, Arthur Griffiths or, or John McCaw, doesn't matter, all these iterations, sponsorship revenue, future broadcast revenues, the undertaking to build that arena with private money had never had never happened in Canada. Now, having said that, there's a footnote. The original uh, Toronto Maple Leafs Garden in the 1930s or 40s was also built with private money. But every other arena in Canada, Toronto, Montreal, Winnipeg, Halifax, is a government project. So the undertaking of the of uh, GM Place, which became Rogers Arena, and that's all that I'll I'll stop talking now. I just wanted to to make that point. <laughs> 100, 160 million, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken. 160 million. What do you think it would cost to build? The, knowing what you know about arenas, what would you think oh, to man. build that arena today would be? I honestly, I'm not sure. It would be a lot more. That's for sure. Just the dollars. just the It'd land. A billion. Yeah. I'm, th- I'm, I'm going with a billion. Million, million. I'll take I'll take arenas for a billion, please, Dave. <laughs> I'll take jokers for ten, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> So is there anything, any last thoughts that you guys want to touch on? Any last questions here? No. Well, I just think that um, Chris has just seen so many changes in the Vancouver sports scene and to pivot from the... And he still looks like a young man. (laughs) You still look like a young man. So what do you, what do you envision the arena will look like 25 years from now? Um, It's still fresh and it still has a vibrancy. The COVID thing has just knocked everybody on their backs and you don't know what's it's to see it empty i mean what is happening with it being empty now there must be a lot of upkeep and maintenance that has to happen and where do you see the arena 25 years from now those are the two questions what what's covid done to the arena in terms of what you do daily and where are we 25 years from now is it still standing or is it replaced with a new one well covid's a whole that's a whole conversation but uh you know we need to figure out a way to make it safe for fans to get back in the building and in for concerts or hockey or lacrosse or whatever that is. And so there's not a lot happening at the building right now, but we are reinventing a few things internally and there's a few little businesses running, but I I do think there's a chance that building could be there for many, many, many years to come. Uh, The the Aquilini the location is prime and the Aquilini family really invests like tens of millions of dollars a year in um, fan facing fan engage, uh, um, engagement act uh, investments, I guess you could say mm-hmm. in that arena. And I do think it'll be around there around for a long time. And, you know, I think you could make an argument that it's, it's almost the most, I don't know if storied arena currently in Canada, but there's no arena in Canada, maybe anywhere that's had both men's and women's Olympic gold medals awarded on the ice that's had two uh, two years of world junior gold medals in 2006 and i think 2018 awarded on ice there and and then in 2011 there was a stanley cup awarded on that ice unfortunately the wrong team um but there's been like it's there's so many things that have happened in this arena and it's been the heartbeat of the city for a long time and i think it'll be there for many years to come Fantastic. Fantastic. That's great. Positive, um, good note to end on. 
That's a really great way to end that. So thank you, Chris, for spending time with us and sharing your great stories. And thank you for continuing to listen to Vancouver Places and come back next week to learn more fun, interesting things about the city of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Vancouver in the blazing sun on the 9th of February, 61. From the 10th of February through till May, it rained and poured all night and day. The more they tried to keep you down, the better I live in this here town. And the more they try to grind you down.